Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by Jayton Paul. He is a sommelier and the current wine director over at Published on Main, which is a restaurant up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Published on Main was named the best restaurant in all of Canada on Canada's 100 best restaurant list. It's probably my favorite restaurant list. Just they're very transparent with the whole process, who's the judges, how it's broken down, who's in what region, all that stuff. I think out of all the lists, guidebooks, all that stuff, I do believe that it is the best one and I wish others would kind of adopt their format. But Jayton has also been named BC Sommelier of the Year. He was the Michelin Guide Sommelier of the Year too as well. And he's currently prepping to compete in the world competition. But before he gets to the world, he's got to win uh, Best Sommelier Canada. And that's kind of what he's currently prepping to do. He also just collaborated on a wine with Ursa Major as a winery in the area too as well. And he's been going through his WSET diploma, level four, uh, working on that. And he's just a busy guy with a lot of knowledge. Uh, first kind of learned about Jayton and what he was doing really through uh, Jamie and Scout Magazine. You know, Jamie, we've had on this podcast a couple years ago, way back in the early days of the podcast. And Jamie's a fellow podcaster. He does a podcast sponsored by Scout Magazine. Comes out kind of like once a month, every other week. It's just kind of random with their release schedule now but they have a lot of great local people on some authors and stuff too as well but just kind of one of the best resources that you're going to find for the vancouver restaurant scene so i'm a big fan and that's kind of how i learned about jayton what he had going on what he was doing and then as this podcast has evolved we've gotten more and more people on focused in the wine industry wine directors beverage directors master sommeliers and Just the competition aspect that Jayton's competing in is just, it's mind-blowing what he has to go through uh, with this thing. And we get into it, but he's had a really interesting career, wound up in New Zealand, kind of backpacking through there, wound up working in wineries. It's kind of how he got into wine. And it just kind of spread out over there, working in some of the best restaurants in Vancouver. And just kind of the whole Canada wine scene, you know, why we don't hear as much about it you know, down here in America and the States and kind of how they compare and everything like that. So it's just a really fun podcast. And it's really cool to talk to people that are super passionate about wine and are super into it and super competitive and super knowledgeable. And that's just kind of, you know, the theme with all of our wine episodes is finding somebody who's doing something cool within the industry and just kind of exploring that topic for a little bit and some other stuff too as well. So you can follow Jayton on Instagram. His handle is at Jayton James. You can also follow the restaurant. It's at Published period on period main and they have a couple other properties within the restaurant group so they have novella coffee bar too as well you can follow them on instagram the handle for them is at novella underscore coffee bar you can also follow bar susu they had a fire not too long ago so they're doing renovations so bar susu is closed but they're popping up inside of novella so you can follow those accounts too as well it's at bar underscore susu and then for the pop-up account that's currently running, it's at barsusu underscore pop-up. So you can follow those accounts too as well. In addition to Jayton and Published on Main, follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. We're on other social media platforms, primarily used Instagram. We also put some stuff out on TikTok in advance of the release of the episode. So if you guys are following us there, you might see who the guest is before it goes live and the episode hits your feed. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use. We're on all of them. If you can't find us on one for some reason, just shoot us a message. There's a contact portal on our website, spoonmob.com. And then you can also just email us spoonmob at yahoo.com too directly. But Run all of them. Uh, All the feeds should be up to date. But if you ever encounter any issues or see anything, just hit us up. Let us know. Uh, We'll get it fixed right away if there's something that we're not aware of. But check out the website. Like I mentioned, spoonmob.com, different 
profiles of all of our guests, chefs, sommeliers, people that are fishmongers, cheesemongers, brewers, anybody who's kind of related to the hospitality industry. Uh, it's broken up into those categories. Most recent episode up top, uh, oldest episode at the bottom, except for in the chef category, there are some profiles of different sushi chefs. I'm a big fan of sushi. We haven't had those folks on. I would have to learn Japanese first before they could come on. So uh, maybe that's something that happens in the future. I don't know. But that's kind of why those profiles are there where they are. You can also follow us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. All the episodes hit YouTube about a week after they hit the podcast platform. So make sure to follow us, subscribe to the channel there. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with sommelier and wine director Jayton Paul, who can be found at Published on Main in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thanks again for agreeing to come on. Uh, take some time out of your day here to jump on and, and talk about your career and what you got going on right now and uh, where you're headed. I don't know what time frame of the year it happens, but I believe that you should be participating in the best sommelier of Canada competition, I think, right, is coming up or maybe it already happened. So I want to get there because it's a little different than some of the other competitions that people have participated in have been on the podcast. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. I think context matters. So how did you kind of first get started with wine? Because, I mean, originally you're from Jasper, Alberta, which people pretty much know for the national park, but not really any food or wine scene there, right? So how did you kind of get involved with restaurants, you know, early on? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, obviously Jasper only is a small town of around 4,500 uh, permanent residents there. So it is a small little town, but there is three different big trades there. One is the locomotive industry. Trains are a huge backbone of that entire place. Hospitality is second because of the amount of tourism that comes through that town. And then uh, obviously just general trade work as well. I found that I always had the most fun working in bars and being in hospitality. I found it something that was exciting. There was adrenaline behind it. There were things that at the end of the day, I wasn't shocked that I had to work so, so long to get to a point where I wasn't happy about it. I found that it was something that was exciting and I was never uh, dreading my time during it. So it was something that was really exciting for me. Turns out one of my best friend's fathers happens to own a liquor store, uh, Jasper Liquor and Wine Cellar in Jasper, right downtown. Um, so we were breaking down cardboard boxes when we were pretty young and just trying to do whatever we could to help out and earn a couple of quarters on the side. Probably not the most legal thing in the world, but we had a little bit of change to spend later on for sure. Um, and they were always really huge supports of me um, moving forward. It wasn't until I was around 19 years old, moved to New Zealand and then uh, kind of backpacked the whole country, found work on a vineyard on Wahiki Island and yeah, started taking it serious from there. From now, looking back on kind of how you came up and everything, do you think working at that liquor store, breaking down those boxes had any influence on your wine career? Or do you think it was just coincidence? Yeah, I mean, I think the people involved, um, just to see the general passion of the people that were owning, running and working in that environment made it something that was special. Do I think breaking down cardboard boxes installed a level of uh, intrigue in me? Probably not so much. But uh, definitely the people involved made it something that I could see myself doing. When you wind up going to New Zealand, you wind up leaving college or university, as they say, in Canada. Where were you kind of headed with that career path before you decided to go to New Zealand and backpack across the country? I went to the University of Alberta at their Augustana campus uh, under a uh, volleyball scholarship. So I knew that I could help pay a small chunk of my tuition and go into kinesiology. 
not really knowing that that was also a prerequisite course thing for a lot of doctors and a lot of other things, which was to be fair, I was in over my head. Um, there was so much to know and there were so many intelligent people around me and unfortunately not a lot of jobs in kinesiology at the end of the day. So a lot of the seniors on my volleyball team were about to graduate with these amazing degrees, but the competition for that area of expertise is so much, right? So I found a lot of these people just going to work in the oil fields or going to go weld or do trades work anyway. I didn't want to spend my hard-earned money into something that I wasn't going to use. So I took that time to kind of step back, thought about all the places I wanted to travel to. New Zealand was the obvious choice for me. Um, there's a huge Australian and New Zealand. There's a big group of people that are obviously within Jasper because it is a snowboard ski town. Um, so there's a huge influx of a lot of Kiwis and a lot of Aussies down there. I always found that I got along very well with a lot of uh, New Zealanders and Every time I had the opportunity to chat with them and hang out with them, I felt like it was a place that obviously we could go to and have fun. Volleyball doesn't seem like a sport that would be involved with Canada whatsoever, right? How does that kind of work? I mean, even being on a, like a scholarship that just seems so outside the box where you think volleyball, you think California, you think beaches, you know, warm weather, stuff like that. So, you know, it's surprising even here that, you know, there's a big volleyball collegiate program going on. I think it was something I definitely fell into. I was very lucky in high school. I was the senior male athlete of the year. Um, I was lucky to be on a very competitive and very successful midget hockey team. To see the upper tiers of hockey, obviously hockey is the biggest sport here, but followed by basketball, followed by so many other things. And volleyball falls pretty far down that list. Just turns out those were my people. I'm six six. I was only I was less than two hundred pounds. You know, it was uh, a time for me to show off my physical ability, and uh, if it meant that I could shave off a bit of my tuition, that would help a lot. Do you still play today at all? Yeah, no, I play a lot of basketball still. So not any volleyball, unfortunately. So when you wind up going to New Zealand, how long were you there? Like, I mean, you, you mentioned backpacking, so that kind of gives me the inclination that you were there for like a month at least or something like that? Actually, yeah. Um, so kind of short of two years. The idea was to go for just a few months. That's a little bit longer than backpacking, I would say. Yeah, a little longer than backpacking. Flew into Auckland, stayed at a good friend of mine's house. Um, they were very kind. They put me up for about a week while I kind of got settled. Went over to Wahiki Island, uh, about a 45-minute ferry ride from Auckland. And it's this tiny little volcanic outcropping that has about 30 little microwineries on it. So it's just an island of wine. And when I went over there, it was a pretty special experience. I didn't know much about wine, but I found that that island was pretty special. And there was something always pulling me back to it. Um, I ended up traveling the entire North Island, the entire South Island, checked out everything I wanted to, hiked everywhere I possibly could, kept finding myself wanting to go back to that island and try and find some work. Turns out it's quite easy for Canadians to get a working uh, tourism visa in New Zealand. So my application was approved almost immediately, which is really, really nice to see. I started tossing out resumes onto a bunch of different vineyards and got a bite on a couple and then stayed for harvest. So what was harvest like? A lot of people, I think, go to probably even in Canada, some of the wineries. You know, there's a handful here in the U.S. that do internships, right? With going through the harvest process for the first time, were you able to kind of do everything from picking the grapes, going through the crush process, bottling, all that stuff? I wish this was more, they had a ton of people that were in their specific jobs and roles to be able to make sure that 
we were doing exactly what we needed to do. And that was it. So I wasn't allowed to be in the crush pad. I was literally just a laborer for harvesting. And then in the other winery, I was leading tours and talking about the place itself, talking about what they were trying to do there and also the wines that they were producing. So I was almost less of a seller hand, but more of a sales associate in one and then more of a general harvester, fruit picker, laborer in the other. Again, I'm 6'6", and these uh, small little nettings that hang above the vineyard to get the birds out, to keep the birds from coming in and eating all the fruit, really uh, made it for backbreaking work for sure, but it was worth it. So was there a moment during this kind of process when you start linking up with the wineries and, and you know, I think you spent time, uh, the one place was also kind of a brewery. Was there a moment that was really transformative for you and like kind of you knew this is what I want to do. I want to be involved in wine in some capacity from here on out. I think it came down to uh, the community. It was a bunch of really young kids like myself that were enthralled in this industry, but I had never seen passion like that towards something like this as much as i'd like to say that culture runs deep in middle of alberta unfortunately it's not always the case and uh, when you have people from all over the world from argentina to london and the uk to a lot of the us as well you have a bunch of people from all over the world conglomerating and talking and speaking about something that they really really enjoyed um, i had never had people my age speaking about wine and for lack of a better word giving a shit like these kids were. And before you knew it, I was working at a hostel during the day. I would help clean it so I could stay for free. And then everyone in that stayed in the hostel was working on other wineries on the island. So almost everyone that was there was working on one winery. So everyone at the end of the day would bring a bottle from each of these places on the island. And we would constantly be tasting each other on these wines that were produced on different sides of the island and different vineyards and different aspects. So it was neat to see that camaraderie but also that community start to grow and it was something that was unpretentious it was real and it was exciting to be a part of because it wasn't stuffy it wasn't pretentious so what led to you coming back to canada was it just the end of the visa visa was one thing and also i saw myself wanting to take it more seriously i basically came back to canada went straight to vancouver after a short stint back in jasper and went to school for it started to enlist in wset and yeah, put my head down and went at it. Why Vancouver over Toronto, which I believe when you go back a certain number of years, most of the masters of wine, master sommeliers were in Toronto, right? There was very few in Vancouver. I think it's more balanced probably now, but why'd you pick Vancouver over Toronto or even, you know, possibly Ottawa, Montreal, something that's on the east side? Proximity to home was always a big thing, but at the same time, uh, my dad is a BC boy. Um, a lot of them, uh, my whole dad's side of the family came from Prince Rupert in the North Coast, so very close to the Yukon border in northern BC. What's really interesting is like Vancouver has long been overlooked um, as a global destination for food and wine, but with the Okanagan Valley and now Vancouver Island producing some of the best wines in the country, it's only starting to build and build. There's obviously an influx in money which is a huge deal here. But Toronto was always the financial hub, right? It always seemed like the baby New York, where Vancouver still has a wild side to it, On uh, from what I think. And what I like so much about that is the proximity to the Pacific Ocean and to the farms that we get to work with makes Vancouver one of the best dining scenes in the world. And although it hasn't been seen that way, 
um, in the past. Over the last 10 years, I think we've made huge strides in making this uh, a destination place for hospitality and food and beverage. Have you been back to New Zealand since? No. Do you plan on going back? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one day. Uh, I still have many, many other places to go check out. But yeah, we'll, uh, we'll hunker down here for sure for now. There are, uh, as you were saying as well, I was just going to say, there are more Master Sommeliers and Masters of Wine within Toronto. Um, there is a solid group of people working very hard towards getting uh, those acknowledgements here in Vancouver as well. The more that we get to build our community, the more people are pushing for it. And I know some great friends of mine that are deep in the trenches trying to get it done. And I, I have all the faith that they'll get it done for sure. When you come back and you decide on Vancouver, like you said, you start kind of doing some study and everything. And then from there, is it just kind of working at different restaurants, just trying to experience different things? Because you're at Chambar for a minute, you know, a couple of years, then you're at Nightingale, you know, after that. So was that kind of the goal was just spend a year or two here at this place, kind of learn, study at the same time and then have a new experience kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, with wine specifically, there's only so much you can learn from books. Um, obviously, it's the foundation, it's the backbone, but at the same time, getting real, real service experience and being able to taste 80 to 100 wines a night for the last 10 years of my life has been an experience that, you know, you can only hope for if you're studying and working towards blind tasting and things like that. You're constantly honing in your craft and the more you taste, the more you learn. I've always been a little bit more of a hands-on learner in the first place. So when I get to work in service and open bottles and taste things that are going to be from different vintages or different areas or whatever else, I can have a little bit more of an application to that education where folks unfortunately don't hit the same way for me. So the more experience I had, the more I learned and it was more real-time knowledge that really meant the world to me for sure. So what led you to go in with W set over one of the other organizations? Was it just that you could kind of go at your own pace, start out? Yeah. And I think it was, uh, again, uh, WSET seemed to be the global standard at the time for, um, just legitimate education background. And I think still is, um, you know, there's, so many incredible people that have come through that program. Right now, it's a little difficult because I was uh, still finishing my uh, diploma, but Toronto is the only school in Canada that offers it right now. So all of my classes were over Zoom at 3.30, 4 in the morning, traveling and paying the money to get to Toronto just to write a couple of exams to then find out what seems like months and months and months later um, is frustrating, but that's all right. We'll get there. Um, I did, however, go through the quartermaster summaries as well. In 2014, I did the intro and the certified and then took two cracks at um, writing my advanced. After my first attempt at the advanced, I had passed service and tasting, but uh, fell short on theory and mostly in the business of wine. And after that, I was like, okay, well, I know what I need to work on. And as I was starting to focus on that, there were a couple of things with the court that didn't align with the way uh, my beliefs are uh, one was a lack of support for the Black Lives Matter during the time of uh, the blackout and all that stuff that was going on. There was also that New York Times article that came out about those uh, ladies that uh, were taken advantage of because of top German in the court, unfortunately. And uh, lastly, the cheating scandal as well with Reggie and everyone else. So 
those three things really made it something that I didn't want to be associated with anymore. Um, I rescinded my application to write again and uh, put the rest of my money back into the diploma. Obviously, with the court, it's something that comes up pretty frequently uh, on this podcast when we have somebody who gets to kind of the level where you're at. So pretty much everybody's fallen into three camps with it. So there's the camp that wants nothing to do with it anymore. Happened, happened. Obviously terrible. Like that organization is is dead to them. They don't want to be a part of it. If they had something with them, you know, they resigned or, or whatever. There's a group that falls into kind of this middle bucket of wait and see approach. Maybe I'll do more certifications with them in the future if things correct themselves, if, you know, they get their leadership and everything fixed and, and some of the policies and stuff that most people want to see implemented. And then there's a third group where it's really the way that you affect true changes to being involved with the organization and change from the inside and that blossoms outward. So with that said, which bucket do you feel that you fall into out of those three? I think it's like, this is a really difficult point of contention in general, because, you know, you're asking put people to put a lot of money into this too, right? It's a lot of stuff that these people worked really hard towards. And uh, I think wine in general has been very not so inclusive, um, kind of like a rich, uh, old white guy club, unfortunately. Um, and that's not the way I ever want to see it. That's not the way I think things are going to continue. And I hope that that's not the way they continue. I see the fact that people are now changing the chair and in the court and everything else. And they are working towards more inclusivity and getting people involved from all walks of life, which is incredible. So I think being a part of that change is a really big deal. I think that it was just a huge shock uh, for, for me because it was in a time where I had learned from some of these people that were the direct parts of the problem. And it seemed to have a little bit more of a, a sting when you find out that these people that you looked up to and who were your mentors at the time and something that you've dedicated your life towards are unfortunately made some terrible mistakes. I would say moving forward, maybe there will be a time where I agree with the way that the courts aligned itself again, and maybe I'll apply to write my advance again. You know, we had Jessica Waugh on who, you know, she went and like was learning from, you know, Fred Dame, like, and it is like, you know, and it's kind of like weird. And, you know, now she's, she has all these certifications and she doesn't really do anything with the court, but she still helps people prepare if that's the way they want to go. But so it's just kind of fascinating how it affects everybody differently. This one thing, and it just kind of spiders out. Of course. And if they're a driver of creating equality in the wine scene moving forward, then I'll support them moving forward. When you join Nightingale, did you purposely join that restaurant so eventually you could get into Hawksworth? Because, you know, that's one of his other properties. But Hawksworth is the, the famous one, right? It's among the top restaurants in Vancouver and all of Canada for a number of years. It still is uh, on pretty much any list that you look up. Did you kind of like go to Nightingale first, more casual environment, and then like, oh, maybe I'll be able to snake my way over here? Yeah, I mean, Hawksworth had a uh, quite the pedigree over the couple years before they were one of the top restaurants in the country um, and they were opening this new place something that was a little bit more casual but it was going to be one of the biggest openings and to get in on a psalm team for the first time was a really great opportunity for me i was bartending before and still studying wine i was still a certified sommelier but i was behind the wood mostly doing cocktail bartending so it was an opportunity for me to step behind the bar and be a part of a sommelier team um, I think we hired five sommeliers 
two leads and a wine director on top. So there was quite the large wine team and we were doing crazy amounts of sales and a lot of really talented people that I still even work with today and still very close friends with today are all running incredible programs in the city now and some have their own wineries too. It's nice to see that start to blossom and all these different people going their own ways, but all still being associated with uh, with wine in general. Nightingale was going to be the biggest opening and it really was. It was a big deal, but the goal was to always work with the wine program at Hawksworth. They had the biggest seller. They had a, a little, I know when we were doing inventory every month, um, I think the highest I saw it was at $950,000 in total standing inventory. Um, and I know in bigger restaurants, that isn't a lot, but for a small little place in uh, downtown Vancouver, it seemed like it was everything for me, for sure. Like with that Psalm team at Nightingale, right? Like that's a pretty unique thing where you have that many people working towards different levels of certification, but all still involved in kind of the wine scene. Like there's been some restaurants like in San Francisco that have done that. I think probably a couple in New York, but it doesn't seem like you can have that big of a team, that many people all kind of pushing towards the same different levels of certification, but pushing kind of towards their same goal. Do you think restaurants can come back to that where they can have that many Psalms involved? Or is it just kind of the years of giant restaurant openings like that have kind of fallen by the wayside and you won't really get that anymore? I'm a huge constituent of the fact that restaurants need sommelier teams. Um, I currently have four dedicated sommeliers on our team at Published, five including myself. That's why we will continue to lead as one of the best wine experiences in town because we have dedicated people to find the exact wine bottle glass whatever it would be for you and also get it to you in a timely matter and making sure that it's absolutely perfect we taste everything we open we have a fun little list for sure but when you have dedicated people on the on your program it's boundless we we have a, a great opportunity to really push and i also think that having that team environment creates competition between them too you know like they're always going to one-up each other and that only makes everyone better whether it's education seminars for the staff or trying to push each other and blind tasting or whatever else there's so many different avenues and it just makes everyone better in general i think so when you're at hawksworth you wind up competing in the best sommelier it's like an annual competition held by the canadian association of professional sommeliers it's like the british columbia chapter what all is involved in that competition because from what i was reading it's it's structured a little differently there's you have to be selected then everybody takes an exam and then like it's like the three highest scores move on to like essentially the service portion yeah yeah like the live round i guess you could say it so your application is there whoever applies is gets an opportunity to to write so basically it's just it's put on by ASISOM, so the world, best summary of the world competition. This is like the initial start, and then it goes to nationals, then it goes to Americas, and then it goes to worlds, for here at least, regional exactly. So what that looks like is basically a group of sommeliers from around the city and province coming in to be able to write an exam. Um, the exam starts around 8 o'clock. It's grueling. Um, you're set in a little room, there's a little business of wine um, application. So you have a little calculator and you're basically building wine lists, finding a starting, ending inventory and markups for a bunch of different things. And then a full theory exam, which is put on 
by some of our most talented wine personalities. Um, so they don't hold back on how hard these exams really are. But it's not about getting 100. It's about beating everyone else um, or getting a few more right than a few other people. And then the top three scores make it to the live round. Uh, the live round consists of service tasting uh, questions, whether it's uh, basically a slideshow of a bunch of wine personalities, or maybe it's places in the world like a shot of a vineyard and needing to know the vineyard itself, or maybe the country that it's located in, and uh, a bunch of other hoops to jump through for sure. Really? Like, this sounds pretty intense, like more so than, you know, the master exam or anything. Like, this sounds rough. Yeah, I mean, with the one thing with like when I did my advanced service uh, uh, practical exam, it was great, but it was nerve wracking because there were four master sommeliers at the table. With this, you have the top wine personalities and the top educators from the country all sitting while you open and present yourself to a packed room full of people and a live stream across Canada as well. So it's not just those four. It's everyone's eyes on you and everything is uh being scrutinized for every little movement so. why do it is it to see where you measure against everybody else in the city is it to help figure out what knowledge gaps that you have you know through the certifications like okay i need to focus on this more is it just because you like to win I think that there's a there's a competitive part uh, with me uh, through um, athletics growing up. There's always that thing, and the competitions for me were always super fun and a great way to push yourself. I found I was complacent if I wasn't constantly pushing for something, and I found that this was a great avenue to continually uh, push my education and get more comfortable with uh, service and tasting as well. The more it happened, you also get hooked a little bit right you get closer every year maybe a little bit closer maybe a little bit closer i never placed in the top three any of my years until last year so really hard to fail that many times and uh obviously one day it goes right and i happen to be the best on that day and i'm uh, lucky to lucky to be here because of it what led to you joining published on maine eventually you wind up there you're the wine director now so how did all that kind of happen i was still at hawksworth uh, they needed uh, managers, COVID had taken over and basically, for lack of a better word, like demolished the style and the um, quality of the restaurant. And, you know, you didn't have people coming in buying big bottles. You weren't selling lots. It wasn't the food that I wanted to serve. I wanted to push. I wanted to see this being one of the best restaurants. Again, uh, my ideals didn't align with the way that the business wanted to go. and. I said I was I was done. So I took about a month and a half, two months. I uh, went back to Jasper, hung out a little bit, thought about whether or not I was going to continue in wine in general. Um, obviously, wine and hospitality had a rough go during COVID. And I found like, you know, when you're told you're not essential, things change a lot in the way that you think about your uh, your career and everything else. But I also realize now that it is more essential than what I had ever noticed. You know, now with the resurgence of hospitality, it's really incredible. But yeah, I ended up leaving because I wanted more. And I saw that Chef Gus was doing incredible food at Published. And I knew that they had an opening. I think I applied just as a manager or as a SOM. Um, they didn't have any SOMs. Um, and I just wanted to kind of weasel my way in there and try and just make an impact right away. 
uh, within three months, I had a good hold of the wine menu and uh, I was basically the head purchaser within the first six months. The wine program, from what I was reading, you know, it focuses on low intervention, organic, biodynamic, naturally made wines that are both sustainable and ethical and kind of the practices. So at first glance, like when you read that, it looks like six, seven qualifiers. And that seems like a lot of qualifiers for a wine to make it through to make it on the list. But is it in reality that there's more wines adhering to those guidelines now? So it's not as difficult to find stuff that fits within kind of those rough outlines that you have? No, absolutely. And I mean, rough outlines, those are the wines I like to drink because I know that they're farmed ethically and with intent that is looking after the land first. Um, I think that's something that is now kind of a you do see people saying that they're sustainable, but maybe they're not doing anything to do so. So maybe they're greenwashing. There's a lot of uh, politics behind this as well. So what means the world to me is really investing my time in a lot of these producers to find out exactly what's going on and how they're farming and how they're treating their wines after they come off the vine. A place where organics even has stipulations. I know they're allowed to spray certain things and you know, what is organic? USDA is different from the Canadian uh, organic associations too. You know, organic in Europe is a completely different thing than organic in the US. It depends on where we're really going here. But if I know that a wine is delicious and it's raised in a way that is sustainable and holistically grown for the most part, I think that's exciting because if you care that much about your land and your place of of work, it's only going to create the best wines for me. So when you're adding a new wine, a new producer, you know, to the list at the restaurant, what are you looking for? Like what, like, are you trying to think what it's going to pair with when you first taste it? Like previous dishes, looking at like price point, you know, can it be by the bottle, by the glass, both? If it's from Canada, like locally, like what does it have to pass through to make it onto kind of your wine list? Yeah, I think all of that, of course, it has to be delicious, of course, but it has to fit with our ethos you know i think a lot of people still kind of turn their nose up at that i don't have a napa cabs have by the glass you know but have you ever had gross Quebec's riesling from the naha i think you should you know this is what's going to go great with our food our chef happens to cook with so much acidity and freshness and herbs that you won't ever see something over 15 and a half percent alcohol on our menu you're not going to see heavily tannic or extracted wines on our menu these wines are going to be light, fresh, bright, acid forward to be able to highlight our fresh cuisine as well. So when you're building out kind of a wine list, when you you know start taking over the wine program, did you have a methodology that you were going off of where, oh, you guys got like a lot of kind of big, heavy reds here, like those can probably go away. We can phase those out, bring something else in. Like, was that kind of how you approached it? Yeah, very much so. And also working with uh, producers not only locally, but internationally that focus on those same ethos of uh, lower intervention. Um, I know that there's a lot of really bad natural wines out there, you know, but there's also a lot of really good natural wines out there. Um, I'm in the camp where I do love natural wine, but I uh, like clean wine. Um, If the wine is clean, I'm excited. The more I hear about how some producers, maybe like Bernard Baudry, you know, a lot of people think that the funk is great, but it's probably just the result of a ton of Britannomyces and volatile acidity. I still love the wines, but there is a reason they taste a certain way. It might not be the 
quote unquote terroir that they think it is because maybe that there are gentle wine faults in the finished product and I can dig it for the most part. But once it gets into a camp where it's a little too much, I think I restrain a little bit more from that for sure. Last year, published on Maine, it's named Best Restaurant in Canada on the Canada's 100 Best List. Because like soon after, then you know the Michelin Guide happens too. Like when that happens, how does that affect the restaurant? You know, it was pretty crazy. It's kind of nuts because uh, the year that same year we were named number one restaurant in the country. Um, I think we we're around 83rd or 84th. Don't quote me on that, but around that the year before. So that was a huge shock to everyone. Being on the list is great, but then being number one changed everything overnight. Uh, we woke up the next day and our phone lines were down because our mailbox was full and nobody could get through. It was constantly ringing off the hook. Our internet sites crashed because there were too many people trying to get reservations um, throughout the day. Uh, there were so many people trying to knock on the door, lineups down the road. It was something that I've never seen before in my life. And it was really exciting. And then to come into the inaugural year of Michelin, for us to get a star meant the world to us because it meant that this isn't just a Canadian thing. This is a international acknowledgement of, of passion and, uh, and that you're on the right track. So it was, it was exciting. And I think we are still staying very true to exactly what we do. We are where we are because of what we do and who we are. But in terms of the success of the restaurant financially and its busyness, yeah, it's it's a big deal. How do you personally feel about like the hundred best list? Like out of all the lists, I kind of think the Canada one is like probably the best. It, they're very transparent with who's on the regional panels. Like you can look all this stuff up through the website where Michelin, all the inspectors are anonymous. The James Beard Awards here in America, I mean, they did a revamp and everything, but it still very confusing who's making decisions on what pretty much it's been well documented the 50 best list is kind of like a pay for play kind of thing like you can influence you know the vote um maybe some of that's changed but you used to be able to fly people in and like all this stuff how do you guys feel about you know not just restaurant awards but specifically the the canada list like is that something that most everybody is like feels is pretty cool and pretty authentic or you know, not that anybody does anything for awards or being ranked or anything, but like out of all the organizations, to me, I, I personally think it's the best. I do uh, tend to agree. I think it's in a, a remarkable amount of work and a lot of effort that goes into a list like that. The big thing about Michelin is, you know, it was $5 million uh, for them to come to Vancouver, you know, and the inspectors get paid to go out. Whereas in Canada's Top 100, that's all out of their own pocket, and it has to be educated diners, people that really see what's going on and are well-traveled and uh, well-cultured in this whole thing. I love the idea of the fact that it's not just Toronto and Vancouver. You know, you can have tiny little town, like tiny little restaurants in Saskatchewan or Alberta that were probably further off the beaten path of what a lot of people would go to in terms of a destination restaurant, but now they're on the map, and now they're um, being put up there with some of the best and now Michelin-starred restaurants in the, in the country. So I'm really excited with how this list goes just because it gets to highlight some of the rarer gems in the further out places in the country, for sure. When Michelin comes to town and you're named Somalia of the Year, you know, for the Vancouver part of the guide, because uh, I think the whole guide is over Canada, how did you find out? Did you get any inkling, like, 
this was coming or was it just kind of blindsided? In Toronto, because their release was a little bit earlier, I found out that Christopher Seeley of Aloe, a guy that I've looked up to for a long time and one of the best sommeliers post off in the country, uh, he was awarded the Toronto Sommelier of the Year Award. And I was like, I didn't even know they had this. Uh, I didn't know this was an award that they gave out. I didn't know it, it was something that happened. Once judging was all over, I got sent a article, basically a questionnaire, Michelin. And it was, what do you drink on your days off? All these uh, normal kind of questions, like, what do you usually like to drink right now? What do you, what are your key concepts for your wine list? All these questions that were very pointing. And then I read Christopher Seeley's article and it was the exact same question. And I was like, okay, this has got to be what this means, right? And then I was in my head about it for weeks being like, yeah, you probably didn't get it. Well, maybe you did get it. Well, maybe you didn't get it. Turns out I did, and I'm pretty excited about it, for sure. Now, also, after that happens, too, I mean, I think you're named Somalia of the Year at the Vancouver International Wine Festival. You wind up winning the BC competition there with the uh, Canadian Association of Professional Somaliers that we referenced earlier. Now, you're scheduled to compete in, essentially, nationals, right, across Canada. So is it still the same format as it was for the regionals? Exactly, but they're just taking the top past winners from each province who wants to compete or which in each chapter, and then those people will compete against each other for the best only of Canada. How do you prep for this? Can you prep for it? Like, obviously, you're studying, but like, there's it's just a lot. It's a lot. Um, constant tasting is a big one. Studying the world of wine is kind of crazy, you know, because it can be literally any. One of the slides was just four different pots of tea leaves. The people that were competing had to identify which of these was a green tea or elsewhere. Um, you know, it's not just wine anymore. And it was a question that was like, which of these four has the highest caffeine content? Something like that. And when you're, it can literally be anything, you know, although it is very focused on wine, the world of sommeliers has changed so much into like even on the floor that we uh, on our tasting menu we have instituted a uh, tea course just so that we can educate our guests about tea we do a hot and a cold steep an 18 hour cold steep and a seven pass hot steep so that you can see the difference in one type of uh, oolong tea called honey orchid from southern china that's incredible but we get the opportunity to showcase that and tell people why it's so great just like if it was grapes or anything else too. So when is the competition scheduled? Is it in the fall or? I believe it's in November. Yeah, so I got a bit of time. One thing, however, uh, that is, again, just another addition to the workload of study that comes along with it is uh, with the Association of the World's competition, you have to compete in a second language. Being Canadian, I should know how to speak French, but uh, unfortunately, I was busy shooting free throws and not going to French class, and I didn't make the MBA, so I'm screwed. Right now, I am studying French every day. Duolingo has been my best friend, but uh, I will be hiring a tutor within the next month to take it to another level, for sure. So this competition, the whole thing's going to be in French? Not necessarily in French, but in a second language. So you can choose, but the majority would be either Spanish or French. That's wild. Yeah, honestly, man, it's uh, it's something that takes it to a whole nother level. And uh, 
you know, there's a lot of schools of thought behind this too. Um, in the best sommelier Canada, the last time around, uh, a lady from Toronto placed in the top three. And just before she went on to compete, she said that she refused to compete in another language. She said that it was ableist uh, to ask of such. And she competed in English. So she was disqualified. <laughs> it was the strangest thing. And like nobody, you know, I've gotten told a million times by the president and a bunch of other people of the BC chapter of the Canadian Professional Association of Sommeliers that was basically, are you going to learn French? That's all we need to know. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, yeah, but like, how much do you know? And I'm like, well, I can get by. And they're like, okay, but are you going to learn French? Like, yes. So that has basically been the majority of my studies thus far. A good colleague of mine happened to be competing in that as well. He competed in French, doesn't really know French, spent about $5,000 in tutoring just before the competition. And it was enough to get him through to compete at the best of the Americas. Um, he'll be competing again this year for Best Family Canada, but he, you know, it's a lot of investment. It's a lot of time and it's a lot of money. So obviously it's nice to come out of it with another language under the belt, but man, it it really uh, wraps it up to another level for sure. Has anybody from Canada won the, the world's like the whole thing or what's the farthest somebody's gotten? Not one, but uh, Veronique Rive um, of Gatineau uh, placed second in the world in uh, in Japan. I can't recall what year it was, but that is the highest that anyone from Canada has placed so far. Is that your goal or what's your goal with it? You know, we'll see how French goes first and see how this competition is. Um, of course, it's something that I want to push towards, but it's also something that now you're in a category of people that are of the top percent able to learn an encyclopedic amount of information. Um, I think my strongest suit is tasting and service because I've been on the floor for so long doing exactly that, where it becomes muscle memory. But those really tricky theory questions are always going to be something that separates people. And of course, I'd love to be able to be competing for worlds but at the same time when i see how talented these people are it's pretty humbling for a guy like me for sure also at the same time as you're doing all this you're studying or taking the diploma for w set so is that wrapped up have you finished all that or you still got stuff left for that still have two exams left and it all kind of works into itself it's all wine at the end of the day you know what i mean and you're still learning about the same regions and vintages and producers and all that stuff but uh i'll probably finish that within this year for sure just two more flights to toronto we'll make it happen do you think once you complete it will you go for master of wine or have you not thought about that at all no i have thought about it i'm, I'm trying to understand the value of what i like the direction i want to go towards um, i have some friends uh, and really really good friends of mine in the uh in the program right now and I see their lives and, you know, I've been studying and buried in books for the last 10 years, you know, and it gets to a point where maybe it doesn't have to be my my direction. Uh, I think the world of wine is so big and so vast that I don't know if I want to bury my head in books any further at that level. If I'm going to be competing, hell yeah. But in terms of putting that investment into another degree, it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to do. And to be fair, I think if I were to go into another direction, it'd probably be production. 
Um, I've been very lucky to collaborate on two different wines and two different labels this year um, in the Okanagan. And uh, I think the more that we can do this, the more I get the confidence to be able to maybe one day do my own label. Earlier this month, I think you guys released a wine collaboration you guys did with Ursa Major, and you were heavily involved with that. So, you know, how did that kind of materialize? How did that all come together? I mean, obviously that goes back, you know, an entire year where it started till now is kind of the finished product that people can get when they come in the restaurant. But, you know, how did that kind of all materialize? I mean, it's really exciting to be able to work with local producers that are starting to be rising stars in our country. Um, Rajan and Brie Tour of Ursa Major are two of my favorite winemakers in the Valley, full stop. But also in Canada, they're making a huge splash and a huge name for themselves. So it only made sense for us to be able to do something with people that we really respect. I reached out to Rajan about a year and a half ago and said, you know, love your wines. This is all great. Our restaurant is growing and we would love to be able to do something that can benefit both of us and give us an understanding of um, quality, but also have an exclusive product that we get to sell. During harvest, I drove out after service one night. Uh, so it's about a four hour drive. I left at one in the morning. I got there because it was very dark around 6 a.m. I leaned my chair back in the car at around 6.03 after I pulled into the driveway. And at I think 6.05 or like 6.07, Rajan texted me and said, all right, dude, are you here? We got to go. Sat back up, drove up to the vineyard and uh, picked and processed all day. Uh, picked until about 5 p.m., picked the entire organic vineyard of Stoneface in Naramata, B.C., and uh, then processed all the fruit the next morning and then drove home and didn't have to work service that night, which was great, but uh, right back at it from there on. Um, it was a long, long day, but we got through it. And then uh, pretty recently, about a month and a half ago, I drove up a bunch of our staff, a couple of our sommeliers from our sister bar, Susu, as well as uh, published on Maine. And we went and bottled their entire allotment of wines. Are you happy with the end product? Did it hit all the notes that you wanted to hit? Yes. I'm overwhelmed with how delicious this wine is. It's an idea that me and him had going back and forth and what was going to work best with the food. And our release was just a few days ago, and the reception has been overwhelmingly positive, for sure. Do you think more restaurants will do collaborations? You know, obviously, if they're in wine regions, it's a bit easier. But, like, the beer industry has been doing this for years, where they'll collaborate with a restaurant, make a special beer, kind of a seasonal thing, or maybe it's a one-time-only thing. Like, do you think this is kind of an avenue for certain restaurants, depending on their location, but, you know, they can kind of cross-promote and kind of grow their core fan base, you know, a little bit? Absolutely. I think you'll see more and more collaborations of this style. But the thing is, too, is that we're just so blessed to be able to have such an amazing wine production region so close to us. You know, obviously, we're at the Mecca on the West Coast of where we're going to be selling the most. But in terms of their production, you know, it's hard to see what climate change has done so far for the BC wine industry. But uh, hopefully things kind of balance themselves out a little bit. But it's been really incredible to see how, how great these wines are becoming. And I think it's only going to get better. You kind of alluded to it earlier, but you think when you get to a point where you're kind of finished with your restaurant career, the path for you is to go into winemaking? I think that would be um, a natural progression that I would be most happy with, for sure. 
Absolutely. I think that that, again, comes with a lot of education and a lot of experience and a lot of things that come into it. But there's something to be said for being away from it all, out of the big smoke of the city. And, uh, you know, I'm from a national park of 4,500 people, you know, when I get to be on a vineyard and hear nothing, it's uh, it's a nice uh, moment of solace for me, for sure. Is there a wine region or, or style that you kind of gravitate towards? You know, every sommelier has that. Either it's a specific wine type or specific location that that's just kind of what sucked them in and how they first when they got interested in wine and it's still kind of their favorite usually to this day. So do you have that? Is there one for you? It's easy to say Burgundy was one of the first things that was like, oh, shit. Okay, this is great. But for me now, I'm a sucker for the Jura. I love the Loire Valley. Austria is an incredible place to me for a wide variety and a huge diversity of quality of wines. And I mean, I drink Riesling with everything. So it all depends, you know. Are there any underrated or lesser known regions or grape varietals, styles of wine that you think should get more recognition and attention than they do currently in the wine world? Yeah, of course. Um, there's so many places I would say like wine styles or grapes. There's, I mean, there's too many for me to ever know, but there are certain things that definitely stand out a little bit more. What we see happening in Canada is the planting of a lot more hybrid grape varieties. I know we were known for that way back in the day. And then we went almost 100% to vinifera. And now we're dealing with things that are happening and cold spikes that hit our valleys and can wipe out entire years worth of production. Um, a good example of that would be Ursa Major just bought 18 acres of fruit in this new beautiful vineyard called Pretty Horses in the Smokamine Valley just west of the Okanagan. And during flowering, we had a cold snap of minus 40. Um, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. My apologies. But it's damn cold uh, and unfortunately killed their entire vineyard. Uh, not one bud burst after that. So if you think about the amount of investment and the overhead that goes into something like that for 100% bud death, that's a huge amount of money on the line for, for investors. So it's, uh, it's a daunting thing. And we know that Vitis uh, Repair Stis, for the most part, any hybrids really, have a little bit more uh, drought resistance and a lot more frost resistance. So maybe that you'll see that coming more into play now. So I'd say hybrids are one of those things for sure that might come into play more than ever. With kind of temperatures rising in, in certain parts of the world, climate change, do you think wines from Canada will become more sought after because it'll become warmer or is that going to negatively affect kind of the grapes that are already being grown in the region because they're not used to that heat there, there's a part where when i started in the wine industry i was told that nothing will ever grow north of 50 degrees where you know we sit right on the 49th parallel in vancouver and east of here into the okanagan you're right at the 49th 50th parallel and now we're getting degree days that are up to 48 45 degrees celsius um, which is blistering hot but the big thing moving forward is that our nights are still so cold because of our northern exposure. So we have natural acidity in our wines. Natural acidity is something that the best wine regions in the world have, like Champagne, like the Mosul, like Piedmont, like all these places that can get relatively cold at night to retain that beautiful acidity. A lot of places in this world that acidify their wines, I find that I can taste that 
more often than not and because it's not well balanced in the wine natural acidity is a big part about making fresh wines and we're lucky to have our northern exposure to be able to do so unfortunately if we're just covered in clouds of smoke from our forest fires every year it's not going to do not going to do shit but (laughs) hopefully that's not the case moving forward so how often does the forest fire stuff happen because you know i'm in columbus ohio we're getting hazy days from some of the wildfire smoke kind of coming down and and people have been having just conversations that get togethers and stuff and some people are like oh well this is like the new normal and i'm like whoa whoa, whoa. i've been living in ohio since 04 like this has never happened before period so this could be just a one-off thing but Obviously, Canada has wildfires, and I was reading up on it, and some of it they can't do anything about because they're in such remote areas where it's just kind of like it's got to burn itself out. Obviously, it happens every year, but to this extent, has that been a frequent occurrence over the last five, ten years? Or Yeah, very much so. Um, it's been pretty crazy. You know, our vintages have been really interesting where 15 was one of the hottest years ever on record. 17 blew that away. We had a couple of medium vintages in between that. 20 was one of the best we've ever had on record. And then 21 was not only the hottest degree growing day, but the coldest as well. And when you see spikes of a difference of, yeah, plus 48 to minus 40, you know, you're looking at an insane degree swing. And that's obviously not great for any agriculture in general, never mind just viticulture, but when we have vintages that are so up and down, you really start to lean into the ones that, you know, that you see the best value in. You won't see hardly any 2021 wines on any of my wine lists because I just don't, I can't see through the smoke. Um, I've tasted so many smoke-tainted wines now that I feel like even in small thresholds, I, I pick up on it. And there's a big difference between smoke at the start during Verizon or smoke at uh, harvest. And there's also a difference between the way that it's new smoke or old smoke. There's a lot of things that are coming into play that a lot of people probably didn't know about and myself included. And as we learn about this, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about. There's a big difference between physiological ripening and phenolic ripening in grape varieties when there's smoke ahead that blocks out the sun. So it's still warm, but there's no UV rays actually creating the photosynthesis to actually get these grapes to a level of ripeness that you'd like to see. So you can see a lot of these grapes and a lot of these finished wines be almost hollow in the mid-palate and don't have the concentration or structure that you'd like to see in these producers is there a reason wines from canada don't seem to make their way to the u.s that much definitely not as much as somebody would think considering that like we're each other's biggest trade partners like i'm in the midwest you never see canadian wines really over here like we can barely even get wines from like michigan apparently so is there a reason for that aside from just trade law and, and probably alcohol law but i'll be honest trade law to the u.s is, is uh, and like an annoyance for sure, because we'd love to be able to get more product down there. But at the same time, even interprovincial trade is a nightmare. It can take me less time to get a wine from Tuscany than it could from Ontario or from Nova Scotia, who are making great sparkling wines. It's crazy to me that we also have to pay an interprovincial tax just to be able to ship any of that alcohol across the border. You also, you know, I know there's about five states, Pennsylvania being one of them being, um, 
more of a four-tier lockdown system, more of a monopolized uh, government-run system for uh, liquor distribution. That is what the BCLDB is. So they make it very difficult for us to bring in new SKUs or to readily have access to what's going on in our orders or anything else as well. So there's a lot of frustration there for sure. I think to answer your question though, we just don't produce enough. Um, we do have amazing wine. And when people from the U.S. come up, as Vancouver is a huge, huge hub during the summer for American tourists, everybody every night says, why can't we get these wines? These wines are so amazing. I wish we could get them in Washington or California or Oregon. And I'm like, well, you know, we honestly just don't produce enough. We consume such a huge amount of our own wines because a lot of people are quite proud about what we do. And people like to drink what's around them and support local producers, you know, even in bad vintages, we'll start rock with the producers and the people we, we know and love because we know that we're contributing to the livelihood of what they're going to be doing in their families. But at the same time, it's always going to be, it's always going to be tough to move those wines around when you only have certain amounts of production. With everything that you have going on, the accolades, the awards, competition, learning a second language, what part of being a sommelier is still fun for you? I think it's sharing what I've learned with everyone else. You know, um, I think it's about our team. You know, I wouldn't be in this position or these accolades or anything else without the team that I have and all the people around me in our community here in Vancouver. So I think just paying it forward and knowing that a lot of this didn't just come by happenstance. It's because I worked my ass off, but at the same time, I had all the right people in my corner to help me get to this point. So the more I can help, the next generation of some ways and give them an opportunity to get to this level as well is uh, my main goal. And to have four dedicated some ways on our team at published is a really great opportunity to start to build that community and start to build the growth of, um, of all these professional careers. When you get a chance to go out to dinner when you're not working or studying, do you compulsively check the wine list when you go out or are you just able to kind of separate yourself and just enjoy it? You know, I think uh, I'm one of those guys that probably doesn't go through it. Um, I think it's something like if I'm traveling or if I'm with my partner, she'll always just give me the wine list and be like, take it away kind of thing, which I'm fine with. But if it was up to me, I would just have some crappy lager and a great plate of food. What do you think is the next kind of wine region to explode? You know, previous answers we've had are Mexico, uh, certain areas of the Pacific Northwest, like in Oregon, our Pinot Noir, Finger Lakes, Michigan has been one that's been a couple times people have mentioned, but throughout all your studying, tasting, everything, do you see a region that's not known for wine or, or maybe it's kind of an insider thing that you think is eventually going to kind of explode over the next five, 10 years, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of those I would say would be in Moravia and the Czech Republic. There's a couple of producers out there that are doing incredible things. Milan Nesteret is amazing. Um, and Dulua Grefti uh, are two producers that I think are really leading the pack in quality wine growing. I think there's further reaches of Austria that a lot of people aren't paying attention to yet and that have been producing for a very long time, and especially on that Hungarian border as well. You see some really, really fun things happening, especially with the uh, Van Gogh Moritz. These guys are doing wines in their experimental series, which are half on like the Lake Balaton. And then some of them are near Lake Nusildesi in uh, Austria. 
half of them are on the border, half of them aren't. There's so many things going on, and I think you'll see that a lot. I'm just curious to see, although there will be up-and-coming wine regions, how the classic wine regions deal with this changing climate. When you talk about tradition and history and what even places like Burgundy have, the fact that they're talking about planting alternate grape varieties is a big wake-up call for a lot of people in this world. What's next for you professionally? I mean, obviously you have a lot of stuff going on, learning French, prepping for the Canada Sommelier competition, finishing up your diploma, being a wine director at the top restaurant in Vancouver and all of Canada, but anything else uh, that you got going on or is that enough? Yeah, no, I mean, that uh, sounds pretty good to me right now. Pretty full plate for sure. Uh, no pun intended, but um, I think just continuing, uh, riding this wave. Um, I think it's really easy to focus on the next step and to really keep pushing. And I just want to take a second to realize what's going on right now and just be present in the moment. You know, it's I'm just very fortunate to be in this position right now and just looking forward to continuing to educate the people around us and to keep growing this into something that is bigger than just me. So this next question comes from the previous guest we had on the podcast, sommelier Brittany Marsh of Heart and Crew in Cincinnati, Ohio. What is an important food memory to you? Can be positive or negative. I was recently in France in the winter. Uh, I went to a couple of different salons, uh, one called Grenier Saint-Jean, uh, one called uh, Le Penetron, and another called Le Div. Uh, Le Div is one of the biggest natural wine festivals in the world, very similar to what you'd see with Raw. But uh, all the principals are the winemakers, um, which is really nice to see because everybody behind their booth are the people that made these wines for the most part. I had an incredible time. It's an incredible, incredible festival. But later that night, we went to a small little wine bar that had hundreds of people outside of it, almost these brick or cobblestone roads and hundreds of people drinking wine in the street out front and then trying to shove their shoulders into the door to try and buy magnums or whatever they were going to buy. It was the busiest wine bar I've ever seen in my life. One of the winemakers we happened to be with was a super fun and eccentric young fellow, but happens to make some of the best wines in the area as well. And he snuck us in after hours. All of a sudden, we're drinking inside this little bar. All the people were still stuck outside, but it got to around 3 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. We're still in there. Bottles are still being popped. And it's already a long day, but, you know, we can handle it. We're seasoned professionals. I go to go to the bathroom. It's upstairs behind the bar. And as I go up the stairs, this guy comes up and he's like, hey, man, just when you're on your way up there, while you're in the bathroom, ask for an oyster. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, just make sure you ask for an oyster. Don't worry. It'll be good. And I was like, is this drugs? Like, I don't I don't know what's happening here. And we get in there, go to the bathroom. And as I'm washing my hands, I was like, oh, whatever. I'll have an oyster. And then all of a sudden, this guy from outside, I see the window open up in the bathroom. He's like, yep, coming up. And I look down and in this little courtyard, there were three guys shucking like an enormous cambro full of oysters. He cracked this oyster, sprayed a little lemon on it and tossed it up to me while like through the window of this bathroom, hammered it back. It was delicious. Tossed the shell back into the bucket and then head back down. <laughs> What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. I would definitely maybe ask about the exposure of Canadian wines to people not from this country. It's really interesting to think about Ontario establishing a full 
VQA system before a lot of the wines were even made or before a lot of the wines had earned a specific location, almost like an appellation control before the wines were even good enough to get to that point where BC was a little bit more of a wild child and we just had great producers from all over making great juice. I'd love to know if they've had Canadian wine and if so, where. I think that would be great. Probably another one that I would say is a uh, maybe a lesser known area for wine production and has the potential to be something super great in the future. So this next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what is the one winery in Canada people should visit and do the tour when they're visiting that area? The area of Canada is quite large. (laughs) Um, But if you're on the East Coast in Nova Scotia, in the Gaspro Valley, you have uh, Benjamin Bridge, who makes incredible sparkling wine. And that little tour, I've been told, is quite fun. I've never been myself. In Ontario, I like the Prince Edward County region. Um, there's some really fun producers out there, and they're making some great wines in PEC. And then lastly, if you're in BC, you have two different avenues in the way I would like to see it. One is in the Okanagan Valley. The north and the south are so drastically different. Where the north, you see a lot more Riesling, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. And in the south, you see a lot more Syrah, Cabernet Franc, which I think are the best grapes grown in that part of the valley. But Naramata Bench is situated so perfectly in one of the most beautiful wine growing regions in the world. And you can bike or get a tour to basically drop you at a ton of different wineries. And they're all so close in proximity that the wine tourism in British Columbia, especially in the Okanagan Valley, is is world class. If you weren't in the interior, Vancouver Island is the other place that I would always recommend. And the Cowichan Valley, you know, it's First Nations for warm land. It is exactly that. Some of the oldest soils in Canada as well. And some of the Pinot Noir out there is, uh, is becoming dangerously good. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for listeners. So who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? The biggest influence in my career would be the people in the community that have continued to push me. Our tasting groups, our study groups, all the people that have been consistently pushing towards the same goal. They're the ones that keep us all going and they're the ones that I would say have the biggest impact in my professional growth for sure. What is your desert island wine? Probably 1998 Flo Ambonet from Crew. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario, I usually get a person gets trapped at the airport, flight canceled, stuck overnight. They reach out to you. You guys are closed. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. There's just so much because Vancouver has so many incredible small little hole in the wall places that just bang out incredible food. But I think one of the best Vancouver experiences, if you weren't coming to dine with us, would be a restaurant called Bao Bay, a really, really amazing uh, Chinese restaurant that basically embodies Vancouver in terms of cuisine, but an approachable way of highlighting tradition and culture in a really nice and atmospheric restaurant. It's super calm, super fun. The food is so great. And their sister restaurant, Kisa uh, Tanto, has a Michelin star. Um, but this is the more casual side of things, which is incredible. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant, a place you have not visited, but you still want to travel to a restaurant you have not eaten at, but you still want to get to and dine one day. Uh, I was very lucky to, uh, win with the best sommelier in BC, um, a $2,000 us 
Delta airline voucher to any wine destination in the world. And I'm yet to actually take that. So I think that is going to be me going to South Africa. I think South Africa is offering such incredible value for the quality of wines that they're doing. And especially in Swatland, I think that'll be my next destination for sure. Yeah, I would say that for sure. Restaurants. You know what? I actually dined at a restaurant in Burgundy, a tiny little farm called Femme de la Rochelle. It was some of the best food I've ever had. It was the most unpretentious thing I've ever seen. And the wine cellar was so deep, I couldn't believe it. If I could go back to anything like that again, that would be the place I would want to go for sure. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Oh man, where do I even begin? While I was working, there was one time I was looking after Jim Carrey and he was jovial and excited and super fun. A great, great guest and an amazing human being. And uh, he was having a nice dinner. A server from the other side of the restaurant restaurant saw that he was in. And he's like, oh my God, is that, is that Jim Carrey? I was like, yeah. And it's not your section. So don't think about going over there. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, that's probably fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. So we're agreed. You're not going over there. He's like, yeah, no, no, no. It's okay. About half an hour later, he comes up to me. He's like, oh man, I think I willed this into existence. I think that this really, I think this need, this was supposed to happen. He was a young aspiring actor in Vancouver and he was like, you know, he's my favorite. And, you know, I think, I, I think I have to talk to him. I'm like, all right. Well, just so we're on the same page. If you go speak to that table, you will be let go immediately after. And he was like, oh, okay. Okay. So I saw him like tampering and thinking about it throughout the shift. And it was about an hour later, hour and a half later. And he, I see him just like pump himself up in the corner of the restaurant. I was at another table and I couldn't get over in time. And I see him pump himself up and he's like, all right, runs over there, gets to the table. Hey, Jim, uh, uh, Mr. Carey, um, Pleasure to meet you, all this stuff. I'm a young, aspiring actor. Uh, I just, I felt like I had to come introduce myself. And the response from Mr. Carey was basically, oh, that's nice. Awesome. Thanks for saying hi. And he kind of like, kind of hung his head, walked back through the restaurant, looked at me and I was like, sorry, bud. He's like, yeah, okay, I'll go. And that was it. Things like that, that some people have this divine idea of, something else and uh, unfortunately it just doesn't work out all the time yeah the weird thing is like especially with celebrities like people forget that they're also people too and it's like a lot of them you know go above and beyond when people you know come up to them on the street or whatever sometimes they just want to have a drink at the bar and just sit there for 15 minutes and not have to talk to anybody just like the rest of us you know and for people just to be real with them and it's yeah i'm never i think athletes are the only people that I'm like, I get a little like taken back by, but it would never be in a point where I'd bring it up or act differently. But those are always the people that I'm like a little bit more excited to look after. But, you know, it's just another person, man. And uh, sometimes not always, uh, doesn't always work out the way you want it to. Food or drink, guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy that, you know, is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Yeah, champagne and french fries would probably be the easiest one to be honest with you even at the restaurant we serve our caviar with tater tots so you know anything high low brow for me is uh always a always a winner all right so this question is broken into four parts so it's wine recommendations so for the person that is a novice wine drinker they know a little bit 
you know, they're open to some things. What do you think they should be drinking? So we broke it into four categories, zero to $20 a bottle, zero to $50 a bottle, zero to hundred dollars a bottle, and then over a hundred, no limit. And for the first three, cause it's zero to whatever. So if all three are, you know, 1995 or whatever, like they fit within those categories. So you don't have to go up to, to the max, but what do you think, you know, people should be looking to drink. People should be trying, um, you know, stuff that you're excited about. First category, zero to $20 a bottle. At zero to 20, I definitely think about producers in Southern France. I think about a lot of producers in Northern Italy that are all still farming the same way that they should have been back in the day, um, but aren't manipulating the wines too much either, letting them speak for themselves. I know that in some parts of the world, a $20 bottle can be really messed with, you know, whether they're adding uh, mega purple or a ton of liquid smoke or liquid tannin or sugar in general. Like when you see people walking around a winery with a big bag of Rogers sugar, you know, probably not the wines I want to be drinking later on. And I think that they've just been doing wines in that part of the world in Northern Italy and Southern France for so long that the dollar value is there because this is just what they've always done. And they've never really changed their farming techniques to be able to appease a uh to be able to appease a market you know i think this is just something that they've always done and it's always been that way and i think for the dollar value definitely definitely hits home zero to 50 zero to 50 i think i would go into there's some world-class austrian grunewald leaner i would say the most approachable dry rieslings and also the most intriguing can be around that price point as well from either the naha or uh, other parts in in Western Germany. And then maybe, you know, if it was in that price point, I think Oregon Pinot Noir is one of my favorites. And you're also right in that price point in BC where you're getting some of the creme de la creme at that price point as well. Zero to 100. Zero to 100, I would definitely lean into producers in Champagne. I would definitely lean into things like Barolo or Barbaresco. I would definitely go into more established regions in the world and with a little bit more cachet. I think Friuli would be a really great place to go there as well in northeastern Italy because you get to try something a little bit more funky, a little bit more off the beaten path. And if you got the the dollars behind you to try some of these obscure wines, I think it's a great place to go. Over 100, no limit. What's some cool shit that you can find? Burgundy. White or red, you're going to be fine. I just think for the dollar value and how Burgundy has inflated into such a high amount, the production levels have been so low for the last few years, but it looks like a good crop this year. It'll be interesting to see how the market relates to that because the prices have only skyrocketed consistently year after year. And uh, now that hopefully quantities are going to come back a bit, it'll be interesting to see how the market can handle it. What is one book focused on beverage? you know, whether it's wine, cocktails, or whatever, that you think everyone should read? Specifically, Wine. Wine and War is one of my favorite books. It's basically an understanding of what happened during World Wars and how the landscape of wine had changed so drastically over the last hundred years. And last question, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that's still kind of stands out to you about him. If you weren't, for anybody else who's on TV, Phil Rosenthal from Somebody Feeds Phil or, you know, David Chang or Jacques Pepin, Emerald, that 
you just always kind of paid attention to, kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love Pepin. I love uh, Bourdain as well. I find I watch, to be honest, mostly uh, Brad Leone. I think he has no air about himself. He's excited about everything and animated about the world of fermentation, unlike anyone I've ever seen before. So he's definitely one of those people for sure. I don't know if he's still with Bon Appetit or not, but yeah, he he was one of the best for sure. It's alive with Brad Leone. And uh, with Anthony Bourdain, man, I, I could probably say everything. All of his shows were so incredible. His one episode, though, where he got to hang out with the guys from uh, Joe Beef in Montreal when he was in Montreal for the 24-hour layover or whatever, that was, a, that was a trip for sure. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Yeah, so uh, Instagram at Jayton James, J-A-Y-T-O-N James. And then published on Maine and now the Box Set Collective. We're growing as a restaurant group, so... My role has changed quite a bit, quite drastically as well. Unfortunately, our sister bar, uh, Bar Susu, caught on fire not long ago. So we've had to do a little bit of relocation and uh, waiting for the demolition of a bit of it. So we'll be back soon with that one, hopefully quite shortly. And uh, other than that, Jayton Paul and, uh, on all other venues and uh, Jayton at publishedyvr.com. Publish is open. You guys are open Tuesday through Saturday? Seven days a week, actually. Reservations, obviously, highly encouraged. Highly encouraged. Um, we do always keep a couple of seats at the bar open if, uh, if possible, but yes, definitely very much encouraged. And our wait list usually sits around two months out. So Usually the reservation book opens like a month in advance, right? Two months in advance. We'll release on the 1st for the two months following. The month following, out. So August 1st opens up? September. No, this is awesome. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. You know, we've had a couple of people on from Vancouver previously. You know, Hector, we've had Brandon from Pigeon, Jamie from Scout Magazine on too, who I know you know a little bit too. And it's always cool to have people on from Vancouver. It's an awesome city. You know, I've been there the one time. Can't wait to come back. I have this bucket list trip that I want to do like four days in like the Pacific Northwest. So like Vancouver and Seattle and Oregon and stuff. So hopefully uh, maybe, you know, next year, the year after I get to do it. But yeah, Vancouver just, we had a great time there. Can't wait to go back. So it's always awesome to talk to people that are super passionate about what's going on in the city and, and always kind of paying attention through Jamie and Scout Magazine and, and stuff that they're doing and, and everything is a cool cool publication scene too as well that i feel gets the the word out pretty great um, if you know exactly where to look best of luck to you on the upcoming competition and the french tutoring i forgot most of my french from high school and college so i will not be able to assist you in any way yeah best of luck and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon at uh, published you know whenever we get back to vancouver absolutely happy to look after you A big thanks again to Jake for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to jump on, chat about his career, studying for the competition that he's going to be competing in this fall, learning French too as well. It's still mind-blowing that he has to go through that just to compete. It's such a crazy thing. And, you know, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, you know, in the intro, it's just that's kind of the people that we want to have on the podcast or people that are doing just crazy things because they're super passionate. And that's definitely among the craziest things that and Ryan Morgan, when he was on, uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and make sure, but you know, just nonchalantly competing in a world bread baking competition and basically being a finalist in New York city. 
just the way he just kind of rolls off his tongue and just doesn't even really give it a second thought was just wild too as well so there's people doing some crazy stuff in the competition space and the more we learn about it just the wilder some of the stuff seems to get but again you can follow jayton on instagram at jayton james also follow the restaurant published on maine it's at publish.on.maine can follow their other properties too as well uh, novella coffee bar which is just at novella underscore coffee bar and then bar susu at bar underscore susu s-u-s-u and then also at bar susu underscore pop-up because they're currently popping up in novella due to a fire so you can follow the other properties affiliated with them as well make sure to follow us on instagram at spoon mob on the other social medias but that's the one that we use check out the website spoonmom.com make sure to follow subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you use to listen to podcast apple spotify google amazon music whatever spreaker deezer they all kind of pull from the few different feeds you can follow us uh, we post too as well the little platforms that we're on so if there's one that you specifically use your android user something like that you can find us there too, or just go to the platform and search Spoon Mob. You'll see our icon, the orange and white logo, and then you can just click the follow or check mark button or subscribe button, whatever the platform uses. Follow us on YouTube as well. Channel's up there. We usually post about it too. Once the episode hits YouTube, so you can click through the link, but if you go to YouTube, just type in Spoon Mob. We'll come up. You can subscribe to the channel that way too as well. Feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback, spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. Spoonmob.com is where you can do that. That. and appreciate everybody who's been listening uh there was a mini episode earlier this week so make sure to check that out with andrew smith if you haven't we will have another mini update episode coming out too as well with a returning guest and also a brand new episode too. more stuff on the way so super excited about all that stuff that's been recorded and stuff that we got scheduled with uh, some really cool people doing some innovative and and just really awesome stuff so make sure to follow us wherever you follow people but uh, appreciate everybody who's been listening if you're new you know, welcome. Hope you've been enjoying what we've been doing and following along. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and continued listenership as we continue to kind of push out new content, new episodes for everybody. But um, otherwise, you know, you wind up at one of these places that we featured on the podcast. Make sure to give them a shout. Uh, let them know that you heard their episode on the Spoon Mob podcast. And that way they just kind of know that it's reaching the people that they want to reach and everything. But that is it for this week. And we'll talk to you guys next time.